Welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast with Matthew Eels. Tell me you heard a scream. I heard, I heard, I heard something. Somebody here? the trailer for Puzzle Box. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Puzzle Box director, writer, co-producer, co-cinematographer, editor and visual effects supervisor Jack Dignan to discuss the new film which is preparing to screen at a Night of Horror Film Festival. Jack began his career as an Australian film journalist, publishing written reviews across multiple platforms while working on his own DIY short films. In the lead-up to After She Died, Jack spent some time working on high-profile Hollywood productions such as Thor, Love and Thunder, Furiosa, Elvis, Shang-Chi and uh, various other films in various roles. Puzzle Box follows substance abuser Kate, who flees to a house in the woods to self-rehabilitate, while her sister Olivia joins to document the process. Following their arrival, the house layout begins to change, trapping them inside an inescapable puzzle box. When I interview a filmmaker like Jack, I'm quickly reminded why I started Cinema Australia. To me, there's nothing quite like interviewing an independent filmmaker at the beginning of their career, Hearing Jack's stories about the making of his two films was a great thrill for me and I can't thank Jack enough for being a part of this podcast. As I mentioned earlier, Puzzle Box will screen at a night of horror film festival, but by the time most of you listen to this, that festival may already be over. So be sure to keep an eye on cinemaaustralia.com.au for more screening details. You can also follow Puzzle Box on the usual social channels. Anyway, enjoy. Jack, thanks for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. 
Oh, you're welcome. Uh, congratulations on Puzzle Box. Uh, I was treated to an early look at the film recently and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I've loved found footage horror since I sat in a cinema all those years ago experiencing the Blair Witch Project for the first time. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh, Puzzle Box has quite a few twists and turns, which I think makes it a worthy addition to the found footage genre. So congratulations on this one again. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, uh, we were speaking off air just then. Uh, Puzzle Box has enjoyed quite a few screenings at international festivals. How excited are you to uh, to finally present it to local audiences at uh, a night of horror? Oh, I think a better word is terrified. Uh, <laughs> terrified to bring it to audiences. Uh, but no, very, very excited as well. I mean, we, we've premiered overseas in, in the US, which is great. We're about to premiere in the UK uh, the same weekend as our Australian premiere. Uh, and so it's been great to sort of just follow the reactions online and sort of see see people watching the film and reaching out or letting people reach out to us and talking about them with the movie and it's cool but there's also been this like distance you know because they're in other countries and they're they're different parts of the world and there's no face-to-face you know I've never been in like a room with an audience watching I mean I have with like cast and crew but not like a public audience uh so that's that's what excites me the most about finally bringing it to Australia and finally getting to sit into a in a theatre with people I don't know and watch the movie and see how they react and, I don't know, have a panic attack in the back row. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it is a totally different experience, isn't it, when you finally get to watch it with a, with an audience? Yeah. Um, this, this is your second consecutive film that screened at A Night of Horror. Am, am, am I correct there? Did After She Died uh, screen at A Night of Horror? Yes, yeah, we, we've been very lucky to to appear at the festival two years in a row. Uh, Bryn and Rob and the team there are a lovely, lovely people. I met them all last year at the After She Died premiere. Uh, and we actually, we we won Best Australian Film last year, which is really cool. And we won uh, Best Australian Performance as well for Vanessa Madrid, played uh, one of the lead characters in that movie. So it was, uh, it's super exciting to be back for, for another year. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that, that's really exciting to hear that it won Best Australian Feature Film. Is that an Audience Choice Award or how was that voted on? Uh, they've got like a jury. Uh, oh, nice. so there's like three or four people, I think, each year and they, they sort of watch all the films and it's like an awards night in the final night. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's cool. <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. That, that's great to hear. Um, so have you attended any of the international festivals uh, where Puzzle Box is screened? Uh, no, not yet. We were we were part of uh, Popcorn Frights over in the US recently, uh, and I was able to participate virtually. So there was like a, a Q&A after the premiere, uh, which I got to do from the comfort of my own room uh, via, via Zoom. Um, but this will be the first one I'm actually attending in person. So it's, it's very nerve wracking, but very exciting. All right. Uh, can you remember any of the uh, reactions that you had to the film through Popcorn? Was Did anything stand out to you? It's interesting. Puzzle, uh, not puzzle box, sorry. Um, found footage is such a a unique film in that, like you know, you've you've got so many people who will just devour the genre and they'll just watch anything that's found footage. And you know, I was one of them back when the back when the the genre was sort of in its peak. You know, when it, that paranormal activity sort of kicked it off and it was it was there for a number of years and it sort of faded away for a little bit and then. It's it started making a, a slow comeback. I feel like the last year or two, um, you know, you've got plenty of films like the VHS movies, and you've got Skinner Marink and Outwars and things like that. And so it's exciting to see fans of that genre getting excited about another found footage movie and being able being able to provide them with hopefully one that they'll like and honors the uh, the tropes of the genre and gives them something they haven't haven't uh, experienced before. 
Yeah, great, great. Uh, um, for our listeners out there, I'll, I'll let you know that I found something in this film um, that I, I felt like I hadn't experienced before in terms of the film's narrative. Um, oh, good. But, yeah, we can, we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, as I often do with this podcast, I like to go back to the beginning of, of our guest's career. Um, uh, you started off as a journalist writing about film. Can you tell us about some of the publications that you've written for and, and what that experience was like for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, when I say I started at this age, it's it sort of started in quotations, but I started at the age of 13, I'm pretty sure, um, just on like a little self-run website uh directors cut movies.com every single review from that age is well and truly off the internet you cannot find them anywhere <laughs> thank god um but it was always something i don't know i always enjoyed just sort of talking about movies and writing about movies and i wanted to express my thoughts in a way that i i, I couldn't necessarily do within my friend circle because they liked movies we saw movies all the time but they were i didn't you know they, they weren't on the same level as me uh, you know, back in back in high school and primary school and stuff like that. So I sort of just naturally found myself drifting towards the internet and wanting to get my thoughts out there. And uh, I kept that website going for oh, seven or eight years, I'm pretty sure. Um, I mean, you know, I, I kept deleting old reviews as I got bigger and more of an audience. Uh, but then I'd start writing other publications. Like I was, I was good friends with, um, well, I became good friends with, um, uh, a lovely man named Jason King who ran uh, a, a website that's now also shut down called Salty Popcorn. Oh. Uh, and so I was one of the uh, the writers on his site. Um, and it was great. I, I loved it. I mean, I had, I had a great time of reviewing movies and getting to go to all these press screenings and press events and being a part of that community. I made I made so many wonderful friends and connections there. And yeah, I don't know, it was, it was a, a part of my life I look back fondly. Yeah. So have you, you, you said that you've deleted the reviews. Did you keep them though? Do you have them in, in an archive somewhere for, for you to look back on? I do. And they will never come right. out publicly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fine. As long as you've got them for you to to continue reading, but I'd hate to hear that you deleted them all and, and never to see the light of day again. No, they are, they are, they are hidden somewhere that only I know where. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So, um, so was writing about film uh, sort of film school for you, would you say? Were, were you learning about filmmaking during that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot about sort of how to critically analyze movies uh, through being a journalist and through being in that culture. You know, I mean, the reviews when I was 13 were like two paragraphs long and they made no sense. But, you know, by the time you get to like 18, 19, and I was still I was on my final days as a critic, it was it was a big difference, you know, in terms of quality and in terms of the way that I would I would view movies and the way that I, I discuss movies and and um yeah, I mean, I, I I never completed high school either. I, I I dropped out early to go to a film course because I got accepted into a film course at the age of 16 and I was able to do that at the same time as reviewing these movies. And so together it sort of just became this like all-consuming film school, I guess. You know, I, I would study it during the day and then I would go write about it at night as a hobby. It was, it was unpaid, but it was, you know, it was a hobby. Um, and yeah, it really did, it really did shape the way that I talk about movies and I look about at movies and the way I sort of think about movies. And I don't know if it's something that I'm like consciously thinking of now when I make a movie, you know, I'm never just like, Oh, you know, like how would, how would I have reviewed this when I was, you know, 18 years old, but it's definitely something that I, I, I know I look at differently, whether I'm aware of it or not. Yeah. So I'm interested to know now, does it, does it give you a different perspective on film criticism um, especially when it comes to your own film. So if one of your films was to receive a bad review, are you more accepting of that uh, than if you hadn't had that experience, would you say? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I know it's not personal. I mean, any, anytime I wrote a, a, a negative review, you, you never make it personal. As soon as you make it personal, I don't think you've done your job correctly. It's it's not, it's never a personal attack on the filmmakers. It's never a personal attack on the actors, uh, or it shouldn't be anyway. Uh, and so, you know, if people don't like my movies, then yeah, whatever. Okay, that's, that's their opinion. They're allowed to not like my movies. I don't like some movies. I like other movies. They're, you know, yeah. that's that's the nature of art. You know, you when you make a film, you you're aware that you're putting it out into the world and you're aware that everyone has an opinion and you, you know, you can do nothing to control that opinion. And I, even if someone doesn't like the movie, I'm mostly just glad that they're, you know, giving it a chance and they're yeah. watching it and they're, they're opening themselves up to what I have to say for, you know, 90 minutes or two hours or whatever. And even if they don't like the movie, I'm still, I, I'll still read the review. You know, I'm, I'm very happy to hear their opinion and hear, you know, what worked for them, what didn't work for other people. And I don't know, it's, it's always interesting to me to see, see what the reception to films are do you read many reviews now and not so much for your own films but just reviewing uh, film reviews in general um yes and no uh i think uh, one of the things that i sort of learned to do as a critic was to not read other reviews until i'd done my one because i yes. feel like that i would start like drawing from other people's opinions and things like that um so I, I, I mean, you know, sometimes you, if you follow like Rotten Tomatoes on social media, or whatever, you'll see posts and whatever, and that's unavoidable. But, you know, I tried, I tried not to until I've made up my own mind, you know, I mean, and then, then you can go through and you, you read reviews from journalists I like or journalists I enjoy reading, or you go into Letterboxd and you read all the, the audience reviews and things like that. But yeah, usually, usually I'll hold off until I've, until I've seen the movie myself. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I I'd rather read a review after I've seen the film so I can make up my own opinion. Um, exactly. uh, so, uh, where would you say that that your uh, initial passion for filmmaking came from? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's it's sort of always that's that's such a pretentious answer. It's always been inside me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. Ever since ever since I was a kid, it was always something that I was drawn to. I mean. When I was when I was very younger, I was super into like, and I'm talking like you know four, five, six. I was, I was very into like documentaries and animals and you know how the world sort of worked, and that's sort of where I initially felt I was going to head at a very young age. Um, you know, I loved David Attenborough and things like that, so I would I would make documentaries about just my town, but it would just be like shots of the beach and me being like, "This is my beach. I like this beach." <laughs> um, and then from there, it it just sort of naturally evolved into into narrative and into film and i think pixar was a great gateway from documentaries into narrative fiction um and yeah i don't know from from there i just i'd always been sort of heading in that direction i'd always been going towards it i don't think anyone ever really told me oh you should be in film or you know my parents they don't work in film they, they weren't like hey you should have a career in film it was just sort of something i found myself at an early age that i i really enjoyed and I haven't stopped enjoying since. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned uh, yeah, documentary and Pixar there. Uh, your last two uh, narrative feature films um, after she died and, and now Puzzle Box have both been horror. Uh, where did the horror genre fit in uh, with you growing up? I've always, uh, well, not always, but, you know, from from a, you know, teenage years onwards, I've been very drawn to the genre. I mean, I think I'm... I'm a Stephen King fanatic. Uh, yeah. Behind me, there's a shelf full of Stephen King books. He, he's he's always been a big part of my life, and I think when I was probably about ten or eleven, I, I fell deeply in love with the films of Tim Burton, and they're they're sort of horror adjacent. You know, they're very gothic and they're dark and they're they're fun, and that sort of 
was the gateway into films like Poltergeist and The Sixth Sense, and then from there it just it just you know the doors were burst wide open, and I I deep dive into the genre, and I don't know, it's it's always been something I've I've been drawn to uh, uh, ever since discovering it. You know, I've always I'm always excited about a new horror movie that's coming out. I think I think it's one of our most creative genres. I think it's the the genre that you can do the most in, you know, especially the most in with the least amount of money too. You can you can get creative with so little resources. And I think when you when you have those restrictions on yourself and you have those restrictions on budget, on the genre, um, you come up with something that's unlike anything else. You know, I think you, anyone can make it, not anyone can make, but you know, it's it's easier, I find, to make a, a a low budget drama. You know, you can get people talking in a room and we've seen that movie 10 million times before, but you put a horror spin on it and suddenly it's it's something different you know there's there's something unique about it there's something intriguing about it and i don't know i'm i'm just a sucker for that i'm a sucker for cool stories and and horror is full of them yes yeah and it's certainly a genre that isn't going anywhere anytime soon it's yeah. it's um consistent it's always been consistently great this genre um mm. it's it's given us so much as as film uh enthusiasts um, so as you've developed your skills, uh, you spent quite a bit of time uh, in assistant roles on various films uh, like Chang chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, um, and as well as others. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of up-and-comers out there who are listening to this who would love to know how you get onto film sets like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've spent, and I guess I still from time to time will work on those big films, Um I, where do I begin with that answer? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. You sort of just try to get uh, small jobs at first. You know, I was doing a bunch of freelance gigs and corporate shoots and just, there's so many Facebook pages where you can just apply for jobs who do job listings all the time on like little small one day things here and there. And you meet so many wonderful people that are also in the same boat as you looking to get onto big sets. And uh, I was very lucky um, in that, uh, so Shang-Chi, that was the first sort of big feature film that I, I worked on, the first Hollywood production that wasn't, you know, a short film or a corporate shoot or a commercial or whatever. Um, that was like, you know, that was a Hollywood movie. It was it was a Marvel film. It was massive. Um, and after they, they got a couple weeks into shooting that. I can't remember how many weeks exactly. Uh, and they got shut down for COVID. Uh, and then, you know, back, that was back in the, the very first COVID lockdown. Um, and then when they started back up again, they suddenly needed a, a health and safety team on that one. So they needed a bunch of people to come in and help with all these COVID protocols and things like that. And, you know, they they were very, very generous in that they would they would bring on board these these young people like myself and uh, my friend Scott Johnston, who who worked on um, After She Died, did one day on Puzzle Box as well. Um, he, he brought me on board for Shang-Chi. And he was a guy that I just worked with on other jobs beforehand. It was both of our first big movies of that scale. Uh, and so he was very generous in bringing me on board. Uh, and from there, I, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I did the job. I, I hopefully did it well. Um, and I met, I met some wonderful people that were then able to get me the next job. And so I jumped ship to the, the visual effects department for, for Thor Love and Thunder, which shot pretty much straight away after Shang-Chi wrapped up and, yeah, I don't know. From there, you just you just sort of continue to expand your network, and you know you just got to get that foot in the door. You know, once once you're in, you'll just meet so many people that can give you so many wonderful opportunities if you work hard enough and you're friendly enough, I guess. But um, yeah, it's 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 it was nice how that all came to be. 
Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Um, so uh, away from your own films, uh, what's what's something that you've learned? What's a big lesson that you've learned working on these bigger films that you perhaps uh, took into your your own films? Honestly, it's just the day to day. Because really, at the end of the day, the, the, these films, they're all, you know, the, the small student films that you make at uni, your own short films, After She Died, uh, Thor, Love and Thunder, they're all run the same you know everyone is is trying to do the same thing they're all trying to do the same jobs um but it's just seeing how a film that's on a scale of Thor or furiosa or things like that you know how how they're run on a day-to-day and how how a set of that scale looks and you know you, there's so many more jobs than you ever thought there were in a film set and you know you just sort of learn okay what does this person do and how does that relate to my job and how does that relate to this person's job and you know what's the crossover here and how do we all communicate the director's vision and then you get a chance to see how all these different directors work and you get to see their different directing style uh which in itself is is a film school of its own um and yeah you just sort of just being in that world i think whether you're aware of it or not you're just absorbing so much knowledge all the time so i mean like even if you can get the lowest of low jobs like i mean health and safety is not a very high up job on on, <laughs> on shang chi but it, it got me in the door you know and it, it got me onto a set like that where i could just be in this world watching these people work and learning so much every single day yeah wonderful uh, you mentioned furiosa there how's that film looking i know you obviously can't say too much about it but uh, what did it look like from from being on set Oh, I mean, yeah, I'll I'll keep things vague because I don't I don't know yes. if I'm allowed to talk about that movie. <laughs> I think there was a little clause in that contract where it was like you can't do interviews about this movie. Yes. Um, but uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed my time on that film a lot. Um, I enjoyed working with George Miller a lot. I mean, not that I was you know directly talking to him every single day, but you yeah, know it yeah. was good to to see how he works and see see how he directs. And I I've taken a lot of of the way that he directs into my own um uh films hopefully <laughs> yeah well that's exciting to hear um so following the release of your previous film after she died the australian newspaper wrote a review with the headline could 22 year old director be the next one <laughs> uh how did a headline like that sit with you at the time obviously that headline's referring to james one the, the incredible australian director now a uh, hollywood blockbuster filmmaker I thought that headline was so funny and I love it. And I put it, I put it in, I mean, it's, it's like, sure. I I, I don't want to say it's not justified, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm fully going to embrace that. Hell yeah. yeah. Why not? If someone's compared me to that, that's amazing. Um, But I, I, I mean, you know, his first film was sore. Mine was after she died. They're on the same level, but, uh, <laughs> but I put it in my, um, I put it in my, in the, my uh, bio in the press release for our mm-hmm. puzzle box because I was like why not you know yeah. it, it gets people talking and then I think my favorite my favorite review I can't even remember what they thought of the movie but there's one line in the review of puzzle box where they they obviously read the press uh, press release uh and they were like uh he he's mentioned as being the next James Wan we're not sure if he's uh given himself that title or not but we're rolling <laughs> with it and I was like that's yeah you know what sure yeah just go <laughs> um, with it yeah, exactly. So I'm going. I mean, you know, whatever. I'm not really, but I'll, 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 I'll enjoy. I'll enjoy that comparison. That was that was very kind of them. <laughs> yeah, and also being an independent filmmaker, you're having to do all of your own press. So to put a line like that in in these press releases, I think it's it's a great thing to do. It's it's certainly eye catching. That's for sure. Oh, exactly, and that's what you want, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah good on you. 
Um, I want to stay with After She Died for a moment. Uh, how was it for you coming out the other end of that film? Because, it, you know, you were obviously charged and ready to jump into another film, but how were you mentally and emotionally following uh, the release of that film? It was such a weird journey on After She Died. Good weird. I, I really enjoyed making that movie. I enjoyed the people I made it with, and I'm, I am very proud of, of what we were able to do with the film. And and I learned so much about not just filmmaking, but myself as a person and as a director. And um, yeah, and it was such an interesting journey because we we got halfway through shooting and then it got shut down with COVID with the second lockdown. Uh, and then it was, you know, there were even more COVID cases per day when we started shooting again than there were when we shut down. So it was this really weird environment where everything changed halfway through shooting and our schedule was completely out of whack and we were like halfway through post-production but we still hadn't finished shooting the movie and I don't know it was such a weird journey that I was like okay this is chaos you know this is this is crazy it's controlled chaos I mean it was a very small film it was a very small set it, it never got out of hand but just you know the world around us was so chaotic that it, it obviously some of that bled into the way we had to make the movie and certain restrictions you know there was there was one sequence that required a lot of extras but we didn't get to shoot it until after lockdown and we had I think four extras that ended up turning up because everyone was so afraid of COVID so we had to reshoot that scene like four or five months later um so it was just a real big jigsaw puzzle putting that film together you know in different pieces at different times and by the end of it I was just sort of this is going to sound terrible, but I was sort of relieved that it was over because I was like, oh, my gosh, I've done it. OK, great. I finally I've finally gotten across the finish line. I am very proud of that movie. and I'm very proud. I'm very happy with how it turned out. But there was there was this sense of relief of, of relief um, when it was over. Uh, and then it was just about getting it out to the world. I mean, I think I finished making that movie uh, like literally like picture locked, done, exported the film. Um, we had our crew screening five days later because the post-production went a little bit longer than I thought I was going to and I already locked in the cinema uh and then two days after that I went and started work on Furiosa so I kind of didn't even have time to like breathe after what? that it was just yeah. straight into the next thing um so I don't know it was it was it was a whirlwind I was definitely tired um but uh I was happy with how the film turned out I was happy with the release we got um I was excited to bring it to Night of Horror last year and then I was, uh, I don't know, I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to get into another film and I, I wanted to start working on my next movie, which, which wasn't going to be Puzzle Box at first. It was going to be something else. I was, I was real keen to just like, all right, take everything I've learned from the making of that film and bring it into this next one. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was, it's, it's still a work in progress this next one. You know, we're still bringing in funding for it. We're still early days. And I knew it was going to be a long process getting it to the big screen, getting to set. And so I was like, okay, well, how can I fulfill my desire to be on my own film set again? How can I fulfill my creative needs uh, without any time or without any money uh, and sort of a, a bunch of spare time? Uh, and that that led to Puzzle Box, you know, and that was that was where Puzzle Box sort of stemmed from was the uh, the the post after she died blues, I guess we could call it. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting way of putting it. Um, I, I just want to ask you a bit about the release of After She Died because as an Australian film enthusiast, it was a little bit frustrating for me to see an Australian film being distributed overseas before it's available to watch here at home. And I know you'll be very grateful for the international release, like you just said, but was it frustrating for you at the time that Australian audiences couldn't watch the film at the same time as people overseas? D does yeah, that play into anything? It, it, it's, yeah, it's certainly... 
you know, in a perfect world, you know, it comes out everywhere at the exact same time. But unfortunately, with the way distribution works and the way different territories work and just the interest in Australian film in general, it, it unfortunately doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Um, I was very grateful that um, our American distributors picked it up when they did. I mean, we we hadn't even finished post-production. We started talking to them. Well, they, they actually started talking to us. They reached out to us wanting to see a cut of the film. And so I sent them like an unfinished cut of the movie and they loved it and they wanted to, they wanted to pick it up, but we were waiting until the film was over. And then when it was finished, we resumed conversations with them and, um they were they were keen to sort of get it out as soon as they could and find a find a home for it in uh when was it september 30 last year so we're almost approaching the uh the one year anniversary of it and i mean i learned i i knew sort of how distribution worked but like really getting to see it through that perspective was just so eye-opening you know yeah. and I, I learned even more than i thought i did and of how it all works and i was able to bring that knowledge into the distribution deals for puzzle box um but you know i think it, 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 it's it's sort of exp it's taken its time to find an audience in australia i guess we we sort of we, we premiered at some festivals but then um we didn't we never got picked up here in australia until until recently um and so it was originally just a we were going to release it ourselves here in australia i was like i can't i can't wait any longer it was like january this year i was like i don't know if it's ever going to get picked up screw it whatever we'll just put it out ourselves so we we self-distributed it in australia which you know it's never ideal it's never going to get millions of dollars coming in that way but it was like all right the people who haven't seen the movie can now see the movie um but thankfully since then it, it has managed to gain some interest in people and so it's, it is coming to a bunch of different streaming services uh, very soon in australia and expanding out and i know i think i think it might already be on tubi in australia I, i'm oh. not sure if that's happened yet but um Yes, I'm thankfully uh, a year later, it, it might finally get a proper Australian release. Yes, yeah, that's interesting to hear what you said there about distribution as well. You're right, it, no matter how much you think you know about distribution, you never actually know fully about it until you experience it with, with your own film because it is quite a complex beast. Yeah, it is. There's so many... I got told very early on um, by Barbara Bingham from from After She Died, and she was in Friday the Thirteenth and things like that. She's a, she's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady, uh, and we didn't have that much money set aside uh, for post production. And, and I offered to pay her, and she was like, "No, I'll do this movie for free. Put that money into post production." And at the time, I was like, "That's very generous, but like, I don't know if we need that much money for post production. I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, we're editing it ourselves and things yeah. like that. It's going to be all right." It turns out she was very correct. We we definitely did need that money for post production. Um, you can get literally to picture lock and sound lock and everything, and be like, "Man, I have so much of the budget left. I am great at making movies. I am so <laughs> under budget." And then like a week later, you get an invoice for like $7,000 for something distribution related. And you're like, oh, my God, I was not ready for that at all. Um, so I'm very, I'm very thankful that she did the film for free and that she she gave me that heads up about saving money for, for distribution and post-production because we definitely needed it. And we thankfully had just the right amount of money left i think we ended up coming in 12 dollars under budget which is wow. pretty spot on <laughs> there you go uh, there's some valuable lessons there for people who are listening who, who yeah, save money save money for save post money. yes <laughs> more than you think you need as a, as a first-time filmmaker you're listening to the cinema australia podcast on soundcloud spotify apple podcasts or at cinemaaustralia.com.au
So uh, let's jump into talking about Puzzle Box. I'm excited to hear some of the behind the scenes stories here. Um, but before we do, uh, tell us about the, I know that you've spoken a bit about it so far, but tell us about the found footage genre and why you wanted to use it here specifically for this film. Because really it could have been, this story could have been told in any style when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the thing that drew me to found footage back in its heyday, you know. I mean, back, you know, uh, Blair Witch, as you mentioned earlier, is obviously, you know, it's the all-time great. It's the classic. It's the best one. It's it's the one that um, me and Caitlin Boyer, the, the lead actor of the film, we watched it the night, literally the night before shooting just because we wanted to be in that world, wanted to be in that headspace and that yeah. style. Um but yeah, I think I really got into the the style of it during the the paranormal activity films, and you know from there every horror movie for a while became a found footage movie. You know they all every studio wanted to make a found footage movie because they were cheap and they were fast, and there were a lot of really creative stories there. And it's a shame that they sort of relied on it in the wrong ways because it sort of killed it a bit for a few years. And yes. um, it was a shame because some of those early ones, like the paranormal activities, they were they were great and they utilized the medium so well and so originally. Um, and I I wanted to see more unique stories like that that really utilized what found footage was. And um, when it sort of started coming back in the last couple of years, you know, I, I was I was thinking to myself like, okay, you know, hypothetically, if I was going to do a found footage movie, you know, what would a Jack Dignan found footage film look like? Uh, and that's where I sort of came up with the story for Puzzle Box and, you know, little ideas and scenes and sequences and characters. And I was like, OK, I think maybe I've I've got something here. And um, it was always going to be a found footage movie. You know, it, 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 I always wanted it to be a found footage movie. I I needed this story to be justified in why it was a found footage film as well. I, I needed I needed I, you know, I didn't want it to be something that you that people looked at and were like, oh, they just made it found footage to save money. I mean, <laughs> yes. yes, you know, technically we did, but also yeah. like it was never not going to be found footage. We always wanted to make it within this budget range with this style because I love the style and I love I love horror movies that utilize the genre well. And I yeah, I wanted to do a film like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's no denying that found footage is captivating to watch. Uh, in your opinion, why are audiences so enthusiastic about this genre? Um, I guess there is a certain voyeurism to it, but uh, why, why do you think audiences love it so much? I think there's just a level of immersion in it that you don't necessarily always get in other horror movies. I mean, especially with Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity. I mean, you know, they're obviously the two most famous ones, but, um, you know, they they felt so real deliberately they felt so authentic they felt so natural they were using you know not very well known actors um you know people thought it was real um and that's scary and that's terrifying and um that's that's why it lasted so long because people just enjoyed that feeling they had you know it's it sort of it feels like something you shouldn't be watching but in a good way you know yeah. um and then obviously there's been so many found footage movies since then that you, you can't really make one and try to trick audiences into thinking it's real anymore i mean no, nobody's gonna not. believe that no one's gonna watch puzzle box and be like oh is this real did this really happen i mean absolutely not and so i knew that going into it as well you know i i, I wanted it to have that same feeling that those original movies did but i i didn't ever want to trick people into thinking like this is something that really happened, you know? And so we also, you know, without spoiling what happens in the movie, you know, as it progresses, things do get weirder. It almost takes a surreal turn. And we we really embraced that. And we embraced, you know, like, how can you make a sort of surreal found footage movie? And that's where Puzzle Box came about. 
Yeah, <laughs> you're you're right about uh, you know not being able to trick audiences anymore. I was uh, in my mid-teens when the Blair Witch Project came out, and I mm. remember it being on the news, like on yeah. the the clock news, that there was this real footage that these people had found, and and it's going to be released in cinemas. <laughs> yeah, what a hoax that that was! It was absolutely brilliant. Oh, incredible marketing, though. Yeah. I mean, massive success. <laughs> Um, so I, I don't want to talk too much about budgets here. Um, you know, I, I don't want to hear any numbers or anything like that. But uh, how does a budget like like something like this compare to After She Died? Is it a cheaper uh, much process and more expensive? Much more? Yeah, but deliberately so. Um, we never set out to make a big movie. We we like I said, we we were waiting to. We were in the process of bringing in funds for a different movie, not a found footage movie. You know, a, a more a traditional horror movie. Um, and I just sort of wanted an opportunity to do something creative, and that's where I, you know this film came about. Um, so we we self raised the money for this one ourselves. We we never we never tried to really go to a big studio or a big company or get any grants or whatever. We just kind of wanted to take what we had, what little funds we had, what little resources we had, um, you know, any money we got off after she died, and we sort of funneled it into this uh, and just use uh, the little resources to create something unique and fun and creative and scary yeah yeah uh, you succeeded at all of those um yeah, the you. film uh, the film explores uh, themes of drug and alcohol abuse and and escaping our demons by confronting them and in this film's case escaping them literally face to face why did you want to explore these certain themes of of drug and alcohol abuse Ooh, uh why did i want to explore it that is a good question um i don't know i, I never really it didn't it didn't necessarily my films never really start out um with you know what is the theme what is the message what are we trying to tell here it was it was i had i had this visual of uh, a found footage movie where a character is running away from a woman who's screaming at them and the, the, this screaming woman is just chasing them throughout the house and i was like okay that's the genesis well, actually it was a man at the time but i can oh. get it later um but um that was the genesis of the story and i was like okay you know, then why are they in this house and what are they doing and who is this woman? And from there, it all kind of spiraled out into like, okay, well, maybe she's, you know, maybe she's an addict, and, you know, that, uh, that's sort of a bit close to home as well. And I was like, okay, well, I can explore some ideas there. And then uh, I'd have meetings with with um, Caitlin, the lead actor, and we'd sort of just discuss um, where we both wanted to take this character. And it was it was very... A lot of it came out through improvisation. A lot of it came out through discussions that her and I had uh, in pre-production where we were really shaping this character around her and we were exploring different ideas about their backstory and about their relationship with their family and their mother. And sometimes we'd have like an hour-long chat and it would translate to literally one line of dialogue in the script. And then mm -hmm. even then the dialogue would get changed on the day anyway. Um, but we just sort of, I don't know, we just sort of, it just naturally came to be, you know, it, it, it was just the right choice for, for this narrative. And it was, it was a subject matter. I was, I was, I was passionate about exploring and I, I still want to continue exploring. And um, I, it was a message that, I don't know, again, we, we, we didn't have a message when we started making the movie, the message came about during the pre-production process. You know, yeah. it was a very loose script. It was a very, um, you know, we weren't tethered to what was on the page at any point in time. Uh, we really wanted to find it with the actors in rehearsals, going through their characters and their relationships and their backstory, and then taking that, rewriting certain scenes. I think we changed the ending about five times in pre-production because it was like, okay, 
what are we trying to tell with this story? You know, yeah. what do we want yeah. the audience to take away? Uh, ultimately, it became the ending that you see in the movie, which I think is the correct choice for how to end a film like this. It almost yeah. went a very different direction. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It was just sort of one of those things that happened. That, that, that's a terrible answer. I'm sorry, but <laughs> no, it's not a terrible answer. And and Jack, you uh, you have explained yourself quite well there, but. Um, the way that you have handled this narrative of the the drug abuse and the substance abuse and, uh, you know, as I said before, escaping our demons by confronting them head on, uh, it, it really is quite clever and I think it's worked out very well in the film. Oh, thank you. That, that's that's really good to hear. If, if we if we mess that up, I think the whole film would fall apart. So that's, uh, <laughs> that is good to hear. Yeah. Um, uh, so you mentioned that the main characters were originally male. Uh, the next question that I had for you was about casting the two leads. Uh, tell us about the development of these characters and, and how it went from male to female. Uh, well, the two leads were all, I maybe misspoke. The two leads were always female. Okay, um, right. I always, I always intended for Caitlin Boyer to play the lead character. That's why she, her name was Kate. Um, I, I knew her. So I, I, I wrote the film with her in mind, with her to be the protagonist and to go on this journey with me. And so I pitched the film to her over lunch one day and I was like, this is what I want to do. I don't have a script yet, but do you want to do it? And she was like, yes, of course, which was, oh, thank God. You know, if she said no, I don't know if the film would actually ended up being a film. Yeah. Um, and so she was always the the genesis of the story. Um, and from there, I, I Lanika, who plays Olivia, the sister, uh, I'd met her before she she'd auditioned uh, a couple times for after she died and she she was one of our sort of front runners for one of the other role one of the supporting roles in that film uh ultimately didn't get it um but i remembered her audition fondly and so i once i had a script once caitlin and i had sort of cracked the story i i i reached out to lanika and i was like hey do you want to read a script i wrote uh do you remember me <laughs> from a couple of years ago and thankfully she did uh we got on a zoom and she was very generous with her time and we talked through the film and the role and um she said yes which was amazing uh and then yeah so the screaming woman character it's that uh she was originally a screaming man what? um and we had a a actor uh cast in that role um and you know he he, he was great um he would have done a great job as the screaming man i've got no doubt about that um but there was just something about that character that that wasn't quite working on the page uh it didn't quite it didn't quite feel connected to the story as a whole. Uh, and I think he, he agreed as well. The actor and I, we had, we had a big chat about it at one point. And we're kind of just like, how can we justify his being here? And at the end of the day, I was like, I can't, I can't justify this character being in this film. And it's, yeah. it's such a shame because it takes up a great chunk of the story. You know, it's so pivotal to the narrative and to the arc. And so I was looking at, I was sort of brainstorming ideas and I was like, okay, how, how can I tie this character into the story? How can I tie this character back to Kate and Olivia's story and make it more of a reflection of of where they've been as opposed to just like this this scary character that's in the house? And um, that's when the decision came to make it a, a female character. Um, the reason why, I'm not going to say, obviously no, it's a no. spoiler, but <laughs> you'll see in the movie, it, 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 it has to be a female. You know, the character doesn't work if it's a male uh, and that's what the script was missing. And so... Uh, you may not believe it, but we that decision came, I think, less than two weeks out from shooting. Um, wow. And so I didn't I called up uh, Cassandra Gerard, who who plays the character in the film. She was in my first film after she died. She played uh, a character named the woman in white, who was a ghostly figure who wanders through the woods and then 
spoiler alert, ends up being the skinless woman chained to a basement. Uh, I loved working with her in that film. I think she has such a uh, such a dynamic screen presence, and she's so she's she's so emotive, and she's so visual, and she can move her body in very unique ways. She's got a great look, uh, and so I called her up and I was like, "Hey, I've just rewritten this character. We start shooting in less than two weeks. Are you available for a two week shoot?" Uh, and she was like, "Yes, a hundred percent. I'm in." Uh, which I'm eternally thankful for. Um, I think she makes the movie. I think she's fantastic. I think she's terrifying, and I couldn't imagine doing it without with anybody else. Uh, and so I'm I'm glad we, uh, yeah, I'm glad the character didn't work out originally because we we were able to get uh, Cassandra, and I love working with Cassandra. Yeah, yeah, and uh, obviously we won't talk about any spoilers, but you're right, the film could not have worked with a different character there, right? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> very different. I think it, would have, it, it probably could have worked, but it would have been a different movie. Ooh, yeah, um, yeah, and totally so once right. once we did make that change, everything in the script that kind of wasn't strong suddenly clicked and it was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, the two lead actors are, are credited as camera technicians, I think is was was is what they're actually credited as. Credited as. Um, yes, they've, they've how, both got camera operator credits. That's camera correct. operator. That's right. So, so how much how much of the screen time are the actors actually filming? Is is it everything, or, or were you behind the camera? How did that work? Uh, no, they shot almost all of it themselves. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They 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 were troopers. They were absolutely amazing. They both come from directing backgrounds as well as being yeah. as acting backgrounds. They're predominantly actors, but I mean, Lenika, she's done a bunch of successful plays. One of which is getting turned into a feature film. She's done documentaries. She's just an all around super trooper. Um, Caitlin as well has done a bunch of short films that have been very successful and she's gearing up for a feature film directorial debut which is super exciting so wow. they they know their way around cameras and that that was a big reason why I wanted to work with both of them as well because I I knew they I knew they would be confident uh, in doing that um, so we had one day of camera rehearsals with them in the house not even a day it was like two hours or less than uh, where I sort of showed them the camera, I showed them how to, how the style wants, is going to be. I showed them how the camera works, and they just got it instantly. You know, they oh. were they were on top of it. Um, they would often compete to because you know they, they do switch operators throughout the film. So certain scenes are being shot by Caitlin, and certain scenes are being shot by Lanika. Uh, and so they they were they ended up getting quite competitive with me to see you know who I thought was the better camera operator and who really? I liked more. And you know I'll never reveal my secrets, but maybe one of them was um but uh no they, they i'm joking they both did a fantastic job um so they they probably shot about 90 percent of the film i would say uh and that last 10 percent uh i did come in and i i shot some things uh you know whether they were just shots i mostly shot um little little pieces little connective tissue between the biggest sequences and little shots that had no other characters in it you know people just walking um people going from room to room uh the house layout obviously changes and so there's a lot of a lot of quick shots of characters bouncing between rooms. And so I sort of filled in the gaps to, to flesh out the edit. Mm -hmm. Now I'm just wondering as a director, was it easy for you to surrender yourself to that, to have two other people operating the camera or was that, was that easy for you to do? Um, it's, it's a unique process. I mean, I yeah. didn't shoot any, I wasn't on the camera for, for after she died either, but I'd always have a monitor for that film. You know, I'd yeah. always be there with the actors, with the camera operator, like right side by side. Um, whereas for something like this, um, I can't be in the room with them and I have no monitor. It's on a camcorder. Um, and so, you know, we, we'd have to, it's an interesting process because we had to, 
you know, just be the three of us or the four of us, how many people were in the scene, we would, we would go into the set, we would sort of block out the general movements, uh, we'd go through the lines, we'd rehearse the beats we want to hit, the parts that they can probably improvise, the parts they can expand upon, uh, and then I would leave the room, I would hide in the dark in silence with the rest of the crew, uh, we'd all literally just lie on the floor for like, it, sometimes it can go up for five to ten minutes, I mean, wow. we, we had scenes that were page upon page upon page of dialogue. I mean, yeah. there's a scene probably half an hour into the film where they're, they're arguing in a bedroom. Um, and that original, I think those takes were like six, seven minutes long. Um, and they have the whole space, you know, they've got a whole level of the house that they're moving around in. So I've got no, I can't be there with them. I have to just put my trust in them as creatives and as actors to deliver the goods and they did they they excelled they they did better than i ever imagined or I ever could have imagined they would um and i after every take i'd come into the room i'd be like how did that feel for you guys we talk about how it felt i'd watch the footage back i'd give them notes then we'd go again and same process over and over again so it was a a unique experience directing this film but i i really enjoyed the process and i, I know the actors did too you know i think caitlin always calls it a dance you know she said she's always doing the dance with the camera and the actors and everything like that and it really is because there's there's so many moving parts but you're all in it together you know yeah. and you, you're constantly back and forth and I don't know it was a it's a very unique way of shooting a movie it sounds very unique and and wow what an experience it must have been to to direct a film almost audibly rather than visually yeah yeah <laughs> very much so I mean I, I I was able to listen sometimes I couldn't hear a single thing uh, other times I, I was I was able to listen to just the dialogue as they were talking, especially for the dialogue heavy scenes. But yeah, there's there's no way of of seeing the visual until until the takes over. Love it. Love it. Love hearing those kind of stories. It's brilliant. Um, okay. so, so what would you say uh, was the biggest technical challenge of, of shooting something like this? I know you just touched on some of them there, but but what what, what was the biggest challenge? I think the biggest challenge is just nailing the logistics of the puzzle box sequences so we yeah. we have um you know when the house begins to shift and all the rooms lead to different rooms it was it was about mapping out uh or being in control of mapping out what room leads to where when do these rooms start to change a second time you know what where where in the narrative are we uh does this cut together well can can these transitions work um it, it, it was tough, <laughs> especially we, we shot it mostly chronologically. So we, we were able to sort of maintain that control and that momentum. And we were able to to be with the characters knowing where they were at all times because it was such a linear process, which you don't always get in, in feature filmmaking. You know, normally it's very uh, all over the place. You shoot the ending first to start later. Um, but for this one, it was very important to shoot it start to finish, especially because it was in that one house. Uh, just because we needed to be aware of where we were at all times, uh, and sometimes we we messed up. Sometimes we 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 would take it to the wrong room, and I would get I would edit every day on set, and so the next day I'd watch the footage back, I'd put it together in a rough cut, and I'd be like, oh god, okay, this doesn't work at all. We need like two or three more shots. We don't have time to shoot that today because we've got a massive sequence to shoot later. Uh, so I would just come back in on the weekends to the house, and I would just shoot these little little pieces myself, just to sort of put it together and have it make uh, narrative sense. I think that was that was definitely the biggest challenge of making this movie. Um, so director, writer, co-producer, co-cinematographer, editor, visual effects. Um, I, know that this is, I know that this is an independent film and, and you do have to take on all these roles, but how do you cope balancing so many roles? Uh, a lot of crying, mostly. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, this one, it, it, it lent itself 
uh to the genre very or to the to the style very well um I had a few more hats on in this one than I did in After She Died, but I also had a bigger crew in After She Died, so I was able to sort of split the jobs a little bit more. And even then, I mean, we we probably could have afforded, well, not afforded, but we it would have been nicer to have some extra people in that one. But um, this one, because it is so small and because it is found footage and it's it's so loose and it's so improv heavy, I I just I couldn't imagine giving up these jobs to other people. You know, yeah. I think it, it it was just something I wanted to. It was a film I wanted to feel out as we were shooting it. Um, and so that's why, you know, I, I'd come up with the shots myself and I'd, I'd shoot it myself, right? You know, the actors would shoot it themselves and I have to edit it myself because we, the first cut of the movie was over an hour longer than what you see currently because there was oh, just so material and we had to, I had to find the pieces that I wanted to tell this story. And I, yeah. I really found the structure in post-production. Um, I didn't want, I didn't want to give it off to a different editor, um, and then have them find the story because then I feel like it wouldn't really be uh my story so i don't know i just kind of i needed this film uh i needed to do all that on this film just to have it be cohesive i guess yes yeah now that's interesting that you mentioned that the film was an hour longer because the next question that i had for you was um the duration of this film it's one hour and 12 minutes which is quite an interesting runtime you it's it's not a runtime that you see very often but that's uh, 72 minutes and how did you settle on that 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 duration um, I, I don't know. It just, it was just one of those things where it, 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 it just got shaped and shaped and reshaped constantly until it became this, um, by, uh, wonderful sound designer and also sound recordist on set, Roy, uh, Roy Soren Sharp, uh, lovely, lovely man. He, I have no recollection of this conversation, but he recalls me saying on like day four or five of shooting that, oh, this film's going to be 75 minutes. Oh. He's dead set certain that I said that. I have no recollection of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the script, the first draft was about 60 pages and the shooting draft was, I think, like 80 pages or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then from there, you know, I mean, it, it's so improv heavy that like, all of these like one page scenes on the script end up becoming like five minute scenes on film. Um and then it was the first cut was like, okay, I'm going to put everything I like into it. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to whittle it down from there. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just, it, at one point it was, I think the first actual cut, cut, not the assembly, like the first cut was about 80 minutes. And then from there, I don't know, it just, it just got shaped into 75 or 70, 73 minutes. I, I don't know if I'm the only one who finds that interesting, but uh, I watch, you know, uh, literally over a hundred Australian films every year. It's that's my job. That's what I do. And um, yeah, almost every film is an hour and a half. So it's just so rare to, to see a film run for that time. So who knows, maybe people don't find that interesting, but I, I did. Well, good. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad. I hope you enjoy the extra 20 minutes of your day. Yes. Um, uh, so I have a final question here for you, which I ask uh, all our guests on this podcast um, have you away from your own films? Have you seen an Australian film lately that stood out for you that that you've really enjoyed? Ooh, um, yes, I I I I saw, I watched um, uh, uh, Godless: The Eastfield Exorcism oh, recently. Um, uh, I know Nick, the director, and so he he's a lovely, lovely man. And that film, I I really enjoyed. I think that's worth checking out. It just came out on. It was just playing in cinemas, and I think now it's out on video on demand yeah, yeah. um i saw some good films at sydney film festival as well i think that was a couple months ago now but um i saw bird eater which i liked a lot um and i saw what did i see i saw 
Late Night with the Devil as well, oh, which right. I, which I loved. I thought yeah. that film was fantastic. Um, I saw that with I saw both those films with um, uh, Caitlin, the lead actor, and we 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 loved both those movies. But yeah, all three of those are worth checking out, especially for genre fans. I'm so glad you mentioned those three because they're right up there as my favorite Australian films of the year. So yeah. uh, it's always good to hear that other people enjoyed them as well. Yeah, loved them. Loved loved all three of those films. They're definitely definitely worth seeking out. Yeah. Uh, Jack, thank you very much for taking the time to join the Cinema Australia podcast. It's, great. it's been uh, great chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much. I've, I've enjoyed the chat.